Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. This episode is kindly sponsored by NHS Test and Trace. With the kids finally back at school, hurrah, and some normalcy returning, we're all keen to keep life moving, aren't we? So, NHS Test and Trace are encouraging all adults in England to get tested twice a week using totally free rapid COVID-19 tests, which are now available for all adults in England. So, testing is going to help prevent the around one in three people who have COVID-19 but with no symptoms. So, they spread it with absolutely no knowledge that they are doing that. So we're all really busy, but rapid testing is a fast and easy way to find out if you have coronavirus with results in around 30 minutes. Isn't that brilliant? So you can order tests to home, which is what we've been doing, go to a test site or participating pharmacies. For more information and guidance online, go to nhs.uk forward slash get tested. That's nhs.uk forward slash get tested. And the more of us that take part, the more we can help protect each other. So, on to this week's episode. Welcome to this week's episode, everyone. Tell me, have you heard of the motherhood penalty? Well, this week's guest, Jolie Brilly, founder of the brilliant Pregnant and Screwed, is on a mission to help us all not only understand what it means, but do something about it. So, Jolie set up Pregnant and Screwed after being sacked when she was four months pregnant. And Pregnant and Screwed started as a project to collect other women's experiences, but has since morphed into an incredible charity. If you don't know of Pregnant and Screwed, please look it up. It's incredible. It supports thousands of mothers each week who face discrimination at work. And Jolie has been doing mind-blowing activism for us mothers through this pandemic. So you might not know this about me, but I love statistics and data. And I actually did an economics degree, which in some ways was a very strange choice. But in other ways, I guess because I do love digging into data on things. And so I've really enjoyed understanding more about the motherhood penalty. I also have this weird skill where I can remember numbers. So you'll hear that in the podcast where when I've read something, I can recall the numbers. So what this episode really, really did for me and and reading Jolie's book called The Motherhood Penalty has really helped me understand more about this issue. And that's my intention for this podcast is that if you didn't know about some of these issues, that they come into your awareness because it's only when we're aware of something, it's like anything, isn't it? It's only when we're aware of something that we can then be part of changing it. I really hope this conversation inspires you to learn more about this, to follow Jolie on Instagram at pregnant, then screwed. You know, Jolie offers some really good micro suggestions at the end of how we can all support each other to 
make it a fairer playing field for mothers. So here's the episode. I hope you really enjoy it as ever. Let us know. I'm always so keen to hear your feedback. If you loved it, please leave a review. Here is the episode. I'm so happy to be chatting to you this morning. Thanks, Zoe. It's lovely to be on here. I've listened to lots of your podcasts. Actually. Oh, thank you. Well, I put on Instagram last night, I was like, I'm speaking to Jolie. Has anyone got any questions? And do you know what came through? No questions, just so much gratitude. Oh. Everyone was like, just say thank you, say thank you. So on behalf of me and mothers everywhere and all the listeners, thank you. You have been working tirelessly through this pandemic. You must be exhausted. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I am. I mean, it's been a really intense journey, actually, the last 14 months. I really wouldn't recommend it to anybody. It's, you know, when it all kicked off, it was really apparent from the outset that pregnant women and mothers were going to be forgotten with every policy and every decision that the government made. And that transpired and so on the 16th of March when pregnant women were placed in the vulnerable category I actually cheered because finally pregnant women had been mentioned somebody had actually considered them and then of course it fell completely flat from that point on but you know simultaneously I was very aware that I'm incredibly lucky I've got two healthy children I've got a partner who also earns a living I had a job and an income I have a house and a garden and I'm safe in my home and I'm white and privileged and so all those things meant that I was in a position where I could actually do something positive. The problem was that because I kept saying that to myself, I burnt myself out, you know, I almost killed myself. I ended up in a state in about May where I was just crying all the time and just felt like I couldn't cope anymore with anything. So, you know, I'd say to anybody that's doing anything like that, you you know, you really have to make sure you do look after yourself because otherwise you end up completely useless to everybody. It's really important to make sure you switch off at points as well. I think it's so true. And I was thinking that when I was reflecting on you last night, I was wondering if you must have got to burnout just from the outside kind of looking in at how much you were doing and the passion and just the adrenal that you must have been in, the kind of constant adrenaline. And and I think we so need our activists like you to look after yourselves because we're going to need you to keep going. And we... (laughs) You can't do that if you burn out too quick. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, it is. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint with most activism and campaigning work. You know, the stuff that we tend to campaign on, we know we're in it for the long game and it's not going to be solved overnight. I doubt it'll be solved in my lifetime, but you've got to start somewhere. But when it was the pandemic and it was an emergency situation and people were messaging us saying, I'm terrified about going to work. I've lost my job and I'm going to end up homeless. My partner's going into work every day when working with patients, probably bringing something home and I'm vulnerable. You know, all of these things that literally, I mean, in some cases were life or death. Suddenly it wasn't a long game. It was a short term game and it was right. We've got to fix these problems now and raise awareness in the right places immediately I mean the thing that did it that was sort of the nail in the coffin really was Mary Pong, the 28 year old pregnant nurse who tragically lost her life to COVID-19 and we'd started on the 16th of 
of March really lobbying for pregnant women to be protected and to make sure that they were safe because we were so terrified that something like that would happen. We didn't know the impact COVID-19 would have on pregnant women. And so why were we not looking after them? And we'd done everything we can to raise awareness of this and to try and keep pregnant women safe. And then that news hit. I mean, it it was just devastating, absolutely devastating. You know, I'll never forget that moment where we heard what had happened and yeah she was just emblematic of everything that went wrong during the pandemic you know a a young black nurse who spent her life caring for other people and then when it came down to it nobody was looking out for her and it was such a tragic situation anyway I'm sorry I've not started this podcast off on a high note here well we're not here really to discuss the high note so they will try throughout but I'm wondering when news like that hits do do you experience rage what comes up for you when you're in those moments I mean I struggle to talk about it a bit actually it was such a point because we were so exhausted and we were so angry and then that happened and I felt like I hadn't done enough. That was the feeling. Really? I mean, the great thing that's come out of it is I'm now friends with her husband, Ernest, and he is just the most incredible human you could possibly meet. And we've campaigned together since then for pregnant women to be protected. And I know that he gets a lot out of doing that in honour of Mary and... I feel like it's such a privilege to be able to work with him and sort of help him say what he wants to say about what happened to Mary. And he's got two young children, of course, now that he's looking after because Mary was pregnant with a daughter who's now called Mary. So he's looking after both of his kids and he's obviously grieving a lot, but he also, by campaigning, feels like he's channeling that grief into something something positive and so that's a brilliant thing that's come out of it I actually want to cry hearing you say that you could have done more because you're doing so much and you know in a way I'm trying not to turn that back on myself you know thinking what was I doing you know I'm just like you I have so much privilege it's so interesting isn't it how we can be so hard on ourselves, even though each of us in our own unique circumstances are trying our best with the knowledge that we've got. Yeah, it was just such a unique situation for everybody and everybody was scared. Everybody was worried about loved ones. Everybody was worried about where the economy was going to go, whether things were ever going to go back to normal. The stress and the strain on everybody will be felt for a long time, won't it? Absolutely. And I love at the start of the book, You say 2020 was the year we finally realised that the needs of pregnant women and mothers are often sidelined and ignored as sometimes disastrous consequences for families. And now is the time we will demand recognition, respect and change. Yeah, we've been best pregnant than screwed saying this for a long time. We did March of the Mummies in 2017, which made a lot of noise and kicked up a big stink. But I think with the way the pandemic played out, because it was so clear that pregnant women and mothers were being ignored by the government in every single decision that they made. And also, of course, the schools were not open and the kids were at home and childcare facilities were closed. So it was all magnified very quickly 
that it's women keeping things going. If we weren't there doing that unpaid labour, everything would collapse. And yet simultaneously, we were totally ignored. And the only time the government even mentioned the fact that it was mothers keeping things going was when Rishi Sunak gave us a little pat on the head and thanked all the mummies. And that was it. That was it. Then, oh, it's done. We've sorted it. We've given them a thank you. The messages that we've had from mothers show how utterly livid they are. I mean, just furious, absolutely had enough. Like it was t- bubbling away for a long time. And then the pandemic has just really highlighted how big an issue this is. And so, you know, once this all calms down, which hopefully it will soon, we don't want to just forget and move on. Actually, we want to utilise that anger and remind everybody of what that felt like and how we were ignored and what needs to change in order to make sure that never, ever happens again. The question I was going to ask is, how does this happen in 2020? You know, and, and actually, I think, you know, clearly, clearly it is because of who is in charge. And yet that in itself is an incredibly complex issue. I have to be honest. I hadn't realised before reading your book about the struggles that female MPs face around the motherhood penalty. Yeah. So it's almost like, do you feel like sometimes you're kind of scratching at this issue, like what could we do? And then a whole other raft of issues come up to the surface. That's how I felt reading the book. I was like, okay, so maybe it's this. And then the next page I was like, no, because then it's this. It's just so complex, isn't it? Yeah, that's the thing. I don't think people quite realise how complex it is. And people see some of these issues as isolated issues. So people appreciate that childcare is expensive, for example. People appreciate that it's mothers that take time out to care for their children. But they don't start to stack all these issues together until you see that there are all these artificial barriers that actually from the point that women get pregnant they're just headbutting one thing after another after another in order to be able to financially survive let alone have a career and have children and so of course for single mothers it's a complete nightmare but yeah I mean female MPs really struggle and it's quite amazing that we have as many as we do, a third of MPs are women, but actually when you compare the number of mothers to the number of fathers, we don't have the current data because, of course, Parliament, the demographic has changed quite a bit. But certainly in the last Parliament, there were barely any mothers, loads and loads of dads in Parliament, but barely any mothers. Lots of the women that are MPs don't have kids. But everything is set up for an unencumbered worker everything is set up as if you don't have anything you don't have a personal life at all can you share because I found it so illuminating what MPs rights are around maternity leave they're allowed maternity leave right but they can't have someone to replace their work in their constitution yeah so you get paid as an MP no matter what happens once you're elected if you are off sick if you are on maternity leave if you remember if your family's ill, whatever it is, you will still get your pay. But there is no right to have somebody to replace you 
So, of course, if you have a baby, you then have to make the choice between looking after your baby or looking after your constituents, which is a completely ridiculous situation to be in. And the only way that you can get a locum MP to come in is you go to what's known as IPSA. So they're the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority. And they're a group of people that sit separate to Parliament and they sign things off that involve money related to parliament after the expenses scandal of course they were set up but they don't automatically allow you to have a locum so Stella Creasy was the first MP to get a locum and she fought tooth and nail for that locum to come in and prior to that no other MP had ever had a locum before and they'd tried they'd said hold on a minute this is going to be tricky what am I meant to do but I hadn't got anywhere but Stella managed to do it but you still even now don't have an automatic right to have a locum you still have to go through this really complicated process in order to get one and it can still be rejected. Isn't it just shocking that the organisation that are creating the rules, the structures, the systems in itself doesn't work for a pregnant or a mother? So it's almost like what the hell chance do the rest of us have? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it, isn't it? If we can't ensure that it works within the power structures that govern us, then we're absolutely screwed to begin with. What I found quite shocking as well is that in 2016, the government commissioned research into pregnancy and maternity discrimination. And that was the research that found that 54,000 women a year are pushed out of their jobs for daring to procreate. So that's one in nine. And 77% of working mothers encounter some form of discrimination in the workplace. And those figures had almost doubled in 10 years So far from improving the situation in 2016 was already drastically deteriorating. It will have got worse because of the pandemic. They had that information and all these recommendations were put forward to the government about what they should do to ensure that that changed. They haven't implemented a single one of those recommendations, not a single one. It's been five years. Yet, two months ago, their mate, Suella Braverman, the Attorney General, needed a form of maternity leave because she was pregnant and they rushed it through parliament so she could have paid six months maternity leave. So they could rush through that to save her job, but they couldn't rush through anything to save the over 300,000 women that have lost their jobs since that report was commissioned. It's staggering, isn't it? And that was what brought you to this work, wasn't it? It was your own experience of being pregnant. Were you 20 weeks pregnant? I can't remember when you got that voicemail. Yeah, it was four months, so 20 weeks, yeah. And I'd not mentioned it until I was four months. I'd done what most women do and patiently vomited my way through the first trimester. And then I had told them by email and I was working on a year-long project and this would cut into that project. So I'd said, I know that you're going to be worried about the project, but don't worry, I've got a plan. Let's have a chat about it tomorrow. And the next day they called me and she, the CEO woman, left a message on my aunt's phone and said, I'm I'm very sorry, Jolie, but we've decided we're going to pull your contract. So could you hand everything over immediately? And that was it. And put the phone down. (laughs) And of course, I immediately knew what was going on because everything had been fine things were going really well. And then I told them I was pregnant. Then the next day, this voicemail arrived 
I mean, I didn't even know the words pregnancy discrimination. That just had never entered my lexicon. I mean, I paced the floor up and down and was shaking and thinking, what on earth has just happened? And then was trying to Google to figure out what to do next, but was typing like pregnant and sacked or pregnant, no, no longer have a job (laughs) because I didn't know these words. And eventually got a lawyer and they wrote the charity a letter to demand I be compensated. The charities threw that letter in the bin. That cost me £250 and I had no idea, of course, where my next paycheck was going to come from. So that was terrifying, hemorrhaging that sort of money. And then I said to the lawyers, what do I do now? And they said, well, you can take them to court. I said, how much is that going to cost me? And they said, oof, about £9,000. <laughs> I mean, who the hell has £9,000? I don't know anybody that has £9,000 just sloshing around in the bank account. So I said, okay, I'll think about it. And the next day I went for a routine hospital appointment and was told that my cervix had almost vanished. And they said, you could go into labour at any point. If you go into labour now, the baby will die. So they rushed me into surgery to try and stitch, bolt my cervix together. Delightful process. And after the surgery, the doctor said to me, look, that may not work. It's not always effective. So whatever you do, you need to reduce stress in your life because stress is the thing that will trigger early onset labor. So I was enormously stressed at that point. I just lost my job and didn't know where my next income was going to come from. And so she said, look, you need to rest. And so I just found myself lying on a sofa for the next three or four weeks, watching daytime TV, rubbing my belly, begging my baby to stay put. And everything overnight, all of my power had completely vanished. I had no job and my identity was tied to my job. My partner now was completely responsible for keeping a roof over my head and food on the table. The only thing I was really good for was as a vessel for this growing fetus, but I wasn't even doing that very well. I was failing at that. And so I just felt like that was it. It was sort of game over. And those three weeks of just lying on the sofa crying, watching daytime TV, rubbing my belly, begging this baby to stay put, it just radicalized me, completely radicalized me. It changed my perspective on on everything and made me realize that women are not equal to men. I love the humility that you say up until that point, you had been privileged and kind of unaware and I would put myself exactly in that place probably now still actually if I'm really honest and that this experience as you say was the first time that you realize that actually the majority of our systems and structures are set up for able-bodied white men yeah I hadn't acknowledged that prior to that situation even though when I look back there were so many signs it wasn't unclear I just hadn't It hadn't clicked for me and it was just getting pregnant that changed everything. And I think a lot of inequality for women does come from our biology. It comes from us owning a uterus (laughs) and, you know, we see that pregnancy, motherhood, it changes absolutely everything for women. And yes, it changes many things for men, but it's very different. 
I mean, I learned so much from the book, but one of the other things I didn't know was that when you face something like you face, and actually I've got a really close friend facing the same thing right now, you're only given three months to bring a tribunal. Well, who's going to do that? And that's one of your longest standing campaigns, isn't it? To try and get that elongated. Because again, this again, I think is the complexity of the issue, right? Because when you look at the data, it's like, is it only 0.1% of women actually take a tribunal? I can't remember the stat. It's fewer than 1%. It's like 0.6%. Yeah, 0.6%. So actually, they're like, well, there aren't that many tribunals. Yes, the reason there aren't that many tribunals is because you're given this three-month window in which women are either in the fourth trimester, knackered, can't think straight, or pregnant and told as you were to reduce stress. And that's your longest-running campaign, isn't it, to get that window increased. How's that going? It's our longest running campaign because really it's what shafted me because I was desperate to do something about what had happened to me, but I couldn't wait until Theo was born. He's fine, very healthy seven-year-old, and then pick the case up after that. So I was forced to make a decision between the health of my baby or accessing the justice that I clearly deserved. And so that had eaten away at me that I'd had the opportunity of justice just snatched away from me. And I thought, this is a completely failed system. That's not fair. That doesn't make sense at all. So it was always the thing that I really wanted to tackle at the beginning. And I never set out with Pregnant and Screwed to become a campaigner. Before I was doing Pregnant and Screwed, I was doing innovation processes for arts organisations and charities. I was working with data and developers and designers on big like complex projects campaigning just was not on my radar at all and I think this is the same for most people that campaign it's not that you want to campaign you feel like you have to so initially pregnant and screwed was just a place for women to tell their stories anonymously and that was quite cathartic for me to read all these stories I genuinely thought if I get these women to give me their stories and we document them and I get a bit of attention to it. I call it my waiting for a hero moment. Somebody will come along on a white horse and they'll go, wow, is this really happening? Okay, we'll sort that out. We had no idea, which was obviously incredibly naive. And of course that never happened. It got to a point where I thought, oh, right, okay, nobody's coming to sort this so I'm gonna have to make a bit more noise and it sort of grew like that when I thought okay I'll make a bit more noise and then a bit more noise and then and here we are six years later but in terms of accessing justice it's just impossible so you have three months less one day from the point that discrimination occurs to raise a tribunal claim nowhere near enough time if you're pregnant we know that stress can be very damaging to the health of a mother and her growing baby. So you don't want to take on these really complex cases when you're thinking about becoming a mother. It's such a big, important, momentous thing in a woman's life. And if you've just had a baby, I mean, blimey, you can barely get dressed every day, let alone mastermind a tribunal. So these time limits just make no sense. And in addition to that, of course, you've got the cost, which we've looked at. Also, the complexity. I mean, it's not easy going through that process, tribunal process. And if you haven't got a lawyer that you're paying £9,000 or whatever it is, you've got to try and wrap your head around these really complex scenarios. The justice system does not work for women. And these aren't small numbers. Like I think you mentioned it before, 54,000 women a year massive amount 
I know it is. It's one in nine pregnant women. And then 77% of working women have encountered some sort of discrimination. Yeah. So three in four working mothers will face discrimination because they are mothers. I also think it's fascinating the gender pay gap. And actually, it's interesting because I did an economics degree and I studied the economics of gender discrimination. How old was I? I was 19. So, you know, I looked at it very academically. And now I was almost thinking of digging some of those books out and looking at it now from my perspective. But I remembered actually what I had studied, which was much of what you found, that really we think the gender pay gap is the difference between men and women's pay. But actually what we're looking at is the difference between men and women who don't have dependents, whatever that might look like, and women with dependents, isn't it? That's the real gap. Yeah, the bigger pay gap is between mothers and childless women. It's not between childless women and men. So calling it the gender pay gap is actually a bit of a misnomer. It's Massive misnomer. It's really a procreation penalty, shall we say. Well, the motherhood penalty, as you call it. What is that? If people haven't heard that phrase. It's the pay differential, really, between mothers and childless women. So it's about perceived competence, benefits and pay that mothers receive compared to their childless counterparts. That's the official definition. But as I would say the motherhood penalty is a better name for the gender pay gap, which is why I've called the book The Motherhood Penalty, because I'd really like that term to be used much more frequently than it is because I don't think the gender pay gap is the right term we're talking about when we talk about the gender pay gap. It's not an accurate reflection of what the data is showing us, is it? No, it's not at all. I mean, I hear people talk about the gender pay gap and they don't even mention motherhood, which is completely crackers and it drives me insane because that's where it happens. The crunch point is when women get pregnant and they have children. That's when everything changes because women get demoted and they get pay cuts. Men, when they become dads, they get pay rises. On average, a father gets a pay rise of 21% compared to his childless counterparts. And it's all because of this perception. It's deeply entrenched gender stereotypes that tell us as soon as a man has a child, he's more dependable at work and more committed to his job. Whereas women, it's the opposite. They're going to scoot off and want to pick little Johnny up from school and not going to be engaged anymore in their work. And so we may as well just try and phase them out or let them just repeatedly hit a concrete ceiling that won't let them progress any further and I think it's so easy to simplify this you know we talk about the glass ceiling and I think that's a useful conversation to some extent but actually it's a far more complex issue than that you know when we think about this motherhood penalty what are some of the really big issues that are driving that so the key ones are Flexible working, childcare, paternity leave, those are always the three areas that we focus on first. Actually, let's start at the beginning. So you start at the beginning and you have a uterus and you will go for a job and a third of employers will reject you for that job because you have a uterus. A third. So if you are going for an interview and you get rejected, the likelihood is one in three times that is because you are a woman of childbearing age. So before you even have a baby, it's happening. 
And of course, it's completely invisible, that sort of discrimination. You've no idea that it's going on at all. And often the interviewers will ask you really subtle questions like, oh, do you live with anybody? Oh, what do you think about other people with children? You know, really trying to obviously figure out what your plans are. And if you've got a wedding ring on as well, then that's probably a surefire sign that you're going to get up the duff soon and they're not going to want to employ you. Then you are in a job and you get pregnant. And what we hear most is not something extreme like what happened to me where you get kicked out of your job. The attitude towards you changes very quickly. So for example, your personal development reviews might go from really good to substandard overnight when your work hasn't changed at all. You're just as good as your job as you were before. Or you might start getting sidelined from meetings. Suddenly you're not invited to the same meetings or you're not invited to go on those business trips or you're not invited to this training session. It's sort of a drip, drip, subtle bullying, really, and harassment that often happens. So then you go on maternity leave. And because we have a system that is set up to favor women taking time out to care for their children, it is women predominantly in the UK who take long periods of leave to care for their kids. We do have shared parental leave. It's a system that makes no sense whatsoever. It's really complex and most people don't understand it. I don't understand it. (laughs) No, well, I still don't fully understand it. And I wrote a whole thing about it in the book. I've met lawyers that don't understand it. So the notion that HR departments are going to understand how shared parental leave works is ridiculous. And of course, that means then if dads are going to the HR department saying, I want to use shared parental leave, they're being put off. HR departments are going, oh, I don't think you want to do that because they don't understand it. They don't know how it works. And only a small percentage of families are even eligible for shared parental leave because, again, the way it's set up so The most recent data shows that it's about 2% of families even use it. So it tends to be the mothers that take the time off. And so then you've set in stone the fact that it's women doing the caring. They are the main carer. The child responds to them. They are the one who knows how to get the baby to go to sleep, who knows how to feed the baby properly, who knows how to change the nappies. The dad is just really the supporting act or the other partner It's just really the supporting act. They will give you a cup of tea when you need it and give you some food, but they're not the main carer for the baby. And so then when you go back to work, it tends to be women that go, okay, I cannot manage all of this unpaid work, caring for a child and doing all of the housework alongside a full-time job because it is literally impossible. So I need some form of flexible working to be able to manage. And they go to their employer and in lots of cases, that flexible working request will be rejected, which means they're forced to leave their job. In some cases, it will be accepted. But what that then means, of course, is they are taking a pay cut and their career completely stagnates because you're half as likely to be promoted when you work part-time compared to full-time. And per hour, you are paid on average £5 less than if you were to work full-time. So there you go. You're right on what is affectionately termed the mummy track because of the way the system has worked up until that point you're in this part-time job where you're not going to progress and your pay is appalling so 
all three work against you. I've missed out childcare, which of course is a critical factor because then you look to return to work and you go, oh, okay, what are our options in terms of childcare? Is there any availability? Often there isn't because we don't have enough childcare stock to deal with the number of kids that we have. Even if you can find it, we have the second most expensive childcare system in the world. Your childcare costs you on average more than your mortgage. It's so ludicrously expensive and it's not very good. The childcare system in the UK is crap compared to other countries. I mean, I remember going to look around nurseries when I had my child and being like, oh my word, they were horrendous, some of them. Walking into one, it stunk of marijuana and there were like slug trails all over the floor and then all these kids came running over to me looking like they were out of some sort of horror film with like snot all over the faces and like their tops ripped. I was like, wow. <laughs> so the standard is appalling because the government doesn't subsidise childcare properly. And so childcare facilities are forced to make these cuts in order to survive and to keep going. And you can barely afford it. Your average family cannot afford proper childcare. So again, you're then forced to either work fewer hours so that you can switch things up with your partner or with family members to be able to manage or you quit your job because you can't afford to pay for childcare. So those are the key barriers that women are headbutting as they move through the process and that barely even looks at the discrimination and the bias towards women. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively and therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe, non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash motherkind. And it's massive, isn't it? it? Nearly a million, 870,000 who are forced to be caring for their children but when they want to work because they can't afford to work. But it's so fascinating, isn't it? Because there's the other side of it, which is, of course, someone like me. You know, I wanted to work less. I still want to work less. I only work 20 hours a week Mm -hmm. out of choice because there's also this revelatory idea that I have children because I want to spend time with them. And I think that's often the argument that's thrown back, isn't it, by some of the people opposing the challenges that you're raising, which is so, I mean, it's unbelievable that's even a challenge, isn't it? But that's what we need to square is this idea of how do we make it fair for women that want to work and fair for women that don't. Yeah, this is often what people say. And whenever I'm on the radio, we always get a caller that calls up and says, but it's a choice. Women choose not to work. And yes, of course, that's true in some cases. The problem is it's not true in the majority of cases. When I did a bit, I just did an Instagram poll and I've I've covered this in the book about two years ago. And I just said, if you are a mum that doesn't work, 
do you want to work but you can't and then said if you are a mum that works do you want to quit your job so you can look after your kids and the statistics were staggering it was like 82 percent of stay-at-home mums want to work but can't and 52 percent of working mums want to quit their job to stay at home so it's not working for anybody the whole system just fails everybody so what I would really like to see is us to recognize that caring for kids is work it contributes to society it's the most important job that anybody can do because if you really invest in your children and look after them and nurture them and do everything that we do as mothers you're going to create really brilliant citizens who are going to go on and do amazing things for the UK and the UK economy. They're going to make sure things keep ticking over. They're going to be bringing money in via taxes. They're going to be building amazing new things that make the world tick. So it's absolutely the most important job that anybody could do, but we don't recognise it as work. You know, I heard somebody on the radio the other day saying that that notion that unpaid labour shouldn't be paid could perhaps come from, say, slavery. It could perhaps come from the fact that we had black women caring for our children during slavery in America. That work was never paid for and it was never seen as worthwhile. It was seen as something you just get black women, women from different countries to do for you in order to have the privilege of being in your country. So there's racism within that as well as sexism. It's all very tied up in like a white supremacy, patriarchal society. I'm losing my train of thought here, Zoe. I'm going off on time. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. I'm really enjoying it. I'm honest. Yeah, my head is spinning. We were talking about what you would like to see. Yeah. Getting deep into this kind of the system doesn't work for anyone. It doesn't work for women who are working and it doesn't work for women who aren't. And you were saying that one of the solutions or one of the big, big, big structural systematic changes you'd like to see is women being paid or being recognized as something that caring for children is the most important job in society. I wholeheartedly, with every fiber of my being, agree with you. We know that zero to five is the most important foundational years. And yet that's where this penalty and all of this complexity and discrimination often kicks in. How would that work then a system, if you were going to think about that big kind of systemic change where women were recognized for this caring role or it was funded differently or set up differently? What would utopia look like for you? So we pay women to stay at home and they do it in other countries. This isn't radical. They do it in other countries. You get me bursary as it were for staying at home and caring for your children and per child so it would increase per child that you had but most people look at you like you've got four heads when you say something like that why on earth would you pay somebody for looking after their own children it's their choice to have a child blah 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 we've been conditioned to believe that work is a thing where you go to a place and you do something for somebody else. It's about buying and selling. We're just conditioned to believe this. You know, when you think about it, why is that the case? Why do we not see care as work and as important? And the Women's Budget Group have shown that if you invest in care from an economics perspective, if the government now said, rather than investing in construction, which is what they keep talking about, 
if you put the same investment into care, you create 2.7 times as many jobs as you do with the same investment in construction. So there are hard economics here. This isn't like a soft option, but we're conditioned to believe that investing in care is somehow just this really lefty, wild, radical way of thinking that makes no economic sense whatsoever. It's hard economics. It absolutely makes sense to invest in care. And so if you look at the childcare sector, if we actually subsidize childcare better, you create more jobs within the childcare sector. You pay childcare workers properly for this really important job that they do, you know, the salary of a teacher rather than the bare minimum wage that you can possibly pay them. And then it means more women will go back to work and they'll bring more taxes in. And so everything starts to work a bit better, but our government just don't think like that at all. So alongside investing in our childcare sector and creating a really good quality, affordable childcare sector, I would also like to see parents be paid if they stay at home with their kids. And I would also like to see us move to a four-day working week or a six-hour working day. Because like you said, you don't want to work full-time. And that's because in this country full-time is a hell of a lot of hours. We were crowned the unpaid overtime capital of Europe in 2019. We work ridiculous hours in the UK. At the minute, we're working on average 10 hours a day during the pandemic. I mean, the mental health of employees is deteriorating rapidly. There was a statistic I saw yesterday, something like 750,000 people a year die from overwork in the UK. Because they're just so stressed and so overworked. I'm not surprised to hear that, to be honest. I'm not surprised at all. So we need to work fewer hours anyway. I mean, our productivity is down the pan in the UK. We have such low productivity. It's because of this long hours culture that we've got. And all the research shows that if you move to a four-day working week or a six-hour working day, however you want to configure it, but much fewer hours, your productivity increases, the well-being of staff increases, and therefore your bottom line increases. But also mothers do much better in that sort of marketplace because they can then compete on equal terms. You can't compete when you're working 10 hours a day because you've got to leave to go and pick little Johnny up from childcare. You can't leave him on the doorstep with a packet of beef-flavoured hula hoops and hope he'll be okay. Somebody's got to pick the child up. The child needs collecting. So we should work a lot fewer hours. That would solve problems, not just for mothers, but I think for all of the UK. I really want to dive into all of that with you. But I also want to dive into a guilt because mm-hmm. guilt fascinates me. I mean, I think maybe I'm going to do far more research and studying on guilt, mother's guilt. I'm fascinated by it because it's so systemic and, you know, it's not about whether you work or not. There was a study in 2015 that showed that actually the guilt levels between full-time mothers and working mothers is pretty much the same. It's just fascinating. How does guilt intersect with this conversation that we're having? And how is that, again, intersecting with the motherhood penalty? So guilt is, again, a man-made issue in that we are constantly told to feel guilty as women. Men are not told to constantly feel guilty. And I cover in the book how often headlines in newspapers do that to women. They purposefully twist things as if it's our fault. There was not so long ago that great headline in the Daily Mail about how mothers are creating obese children 
And actually, when you read the study properly, it didn't say that at all. Yet the Daily Mail, the Telegraph, and maybe even the Times titled it, Mothers Creating Obese Children. But the study actually said what is happening is because there's so much pressure on families at the moment, then parents are not feeding their children what they should be feeding them because they're rushing. And actually, mothers need more support in order to be able to handle all of the different situations that they've got to deal with. Were all those articles written by men? Yeah, of course they were. There was also a headline about serial killers and it talked about the mothers of serial killers. So it you know, listed out what the mothers had done in order to create these serial killers. So those are two sort of extreme examples. It's often much more subtle than that. And we are constantly drip fed these messages that we are not caring for our children properly and we're not doing our job properly. And actually, when you look at the data, even working mothers are spending way more time with their kids than we did 50 years ago. That's what's really fascinating. And yet we are constantly, and I hear this all the time on Instagram, I feel really guilty. I'm not doing this with my child. I feel really guilty that I shouldn't be looking at my phone and I should be spending time with them and teaching them algebra or whatever it is. But actually, we are spending way more time with our kids than we were 50 years ago. So this is all complete nonsense. And yet we believe it because we're told that we're not good enough constantly. And so that intersects with the motherhood penalty because it means that lots of women take a step back from their careers because they feel that they're not doing their mum job well enough. And it also means that our mental health is rapidly deteriorating. It's really unraveling for many, many mothers. And I cover the statistics in the book. I can't remember them off the top of my head, but the number, I mean, certainly during the pandemic, our most recent data found that a third of mothers are telling us they have mental health issues. And the pressure on them is just unreal. And of course, that affects every element of what they do. It affects their job. It affects their ability to parent. Well, I think one of the stats is that working mothers are 40% more stressed than any other humans. Yeah. You know, it's so fascinating. Often what I talk about on this podcast is the psychology of raising children as well as the one that had well-being. And when you look at that, it just doesn't make any sense. We know that when mothers are stressed, it's not the right environment for our children to thrive either. And then we spend billions on fixing mental health in later life. The system is just utterly broken what came of the duchess of cambridge's to be honest i haven't tracked it closely enough her zero to five study on this did anything come out i haven't seen anything that's been useful for us i'm afraid i'm sad to say no and i had hoped that there would be more on there i keep hoping with both the duchess of cambridge's study and also with the government the government were looking at naught to five years as well and doing their own investigation to that that they would talk about the childcare sector and how because of course that's when children are in childcare, but they don't neither of them really have touched on childcare and the importance of childcare and how much our childcare system is failing children 
at the moment. And it really is failing children. It's failing children from the poorest families. That's what's the worst part of it, because all of the research shows that childcare is really good for kids from more deprived backgrounds. It closes the attainment gap. And our attainment gap between the poorest children and the wealthiest children has widened massively over the last 10 years. The government would tell you differently, but if you look at the data, it really has widened and it's only going to get worse. And childcare is the fix-all for that problem. If you have a really great childcare system that works for the most deprived children and the wealthiest children, you start to close that gap. And that's, of course, important. What the government keeps saying they want to do, but they're ignoring this massive, great big elephant in the room with all of their studies on it. So if you think about your next kind of year, what are the big things that you're focusing on? Well, the pandemic obviously isn't over yet. So there are still some things we're working on there. We've been working the vaccine and ensuring that pregnant women have access to the vaccine should they choose to take it. I'm not telling anybody to take the vaccine. It's just if they want it, they should be able to access it. And we do think that in certainly in the third trimester, pregnant women should be prioritised for the vaccine because they are more vulnerable if they are infected with COVID-19. So that's bubbling away. We're working on that at the moment. We're also working with the But Not Maternity Group on access to partners being able to attend hospitals. And particularly at the moment, we've just started looking at what happens in the postnatal wards. And that looks like people are having some horrendous experiences in the postnatal wards. And then In terms of the future, it's really about harnessing this anger that women feel. And so I really do hope that we can get together again in person and do something. And, you know, I really want us to get together and make a big statement, make a big stink and make sure people start to listen. And then we will be really doubling down on those core campaigns of childcare, paternity leave and flexible working, how we change the flexible working landscape. Mm-hmm. And childcare is in a really interesting one at the moment because we're seeing a lot more noise on it. I think in part because America, of course, President Biden has just said they're going to invest 1.7 billion in the care sector. And he's talked about childcare being an investment and about it being infrastructure. And the same with Australia and the same with Canada. They're investing tons of money in the childcare sector. Meanwhile, our government are cutting funding to our childcare sector. So we're considering how we ride that wave at the moment and try and use this as an opportunity to finally get the government to listen on childcare. And how can my listeners help? What can people do and what can I do? You know, is there anything that I can do to support? I mean, all this data you've got in your head, Zoe. Just <laughs> just follow me around everywhere. And they were 30%, 42%, 400%. I could definitely offer that service for you. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of things people can do. So As an individual, you can obviously follow us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and keep on top of what we're doing because we often ask people to support us and give them very specific things they need to do. If you work in a company, then try and get together lots of women from your company so that you can create 
a group of you that can talk to your employer about the issues that mums face in that company because you work together so much better than as an individual. So set up a women's group. Use the Leave Loudly approach that was developed by the Pepsi co-CEO Robert Reitbrock and leave your office on time. Don't do overtime. Leave your office on time and do it loudly so that other people know that it's okay to implement that themselves particularly if you're in a senior position I love what Anna Whitehouse was talking about yesterday that if you do maternity cover tell the woman whose job you're covering that her job is safe with you and you're not going to try and take it you know we need to be watching out for each other stuff like that I think is really really important get to know your MP if you're very lucky you'll have an MP that has a similar worldview to you not like me I have one who has a completely opposite worldview to me I'm sure he has a little cupboard in his office where he just files all the messages that totally really I'm not even reading that but try and get to know your MP and talk to them about some of these issues they are your access to parliament and it's parliament that really needs to act on many of these issues read about this so that you know the facts and statistics and so that you can have conversations with people because there are very few people that understand this and you'd be surprised at people who you are friends with who are in your family who have these really patriarchal notions about how things should work and yet don't really understand how damaging that is. So read my book and other things about the issue and have these open conversations with people that you know so you can try and really tackle these ridiculous perceptions that people have. How are you funded? Can we donate? You can donate, yes. We are a charity, so we get funding from donations and trusts and foundations and that sort of thing. So yes, you can definitely donate. That would be lovely. It's good to have that really specific kind of call to action, I think. Yeah. So I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be? I want to have a massive party when all this is over. I think every mother deserves to just dump their kids with their partner or whoever. Let's just go out and have a really good dance and get really drunk and give each other a massive cuddle and say, well, bloody done. Well done. (laughs) Oh my God, I would love that so much. (laughs) It's bubbling away. I am definitely going to organise a massive party as soon as we can. I'll be there. I'll be there. (laughs) Well, it's been such a joy. I've loved this conversation. And also, you know, reading your book, genuinely, genuinely, I'm not just saying this, has made me think about some of my own biases. It's made me think really carefully about how I can use my platform to talk and investigate and bring up more of these issues so thank you and I have to say I said this before we started recording you have made a lot of stats in that book it is so readable I kind of devoured it so if anyone's thinking oh I don't want to read a book about stats it's not that at all it is full of stories and passion and it's a brilliant brilliant read I've actually bought five copies which I'm sending to my friends who are very senior in HR and big organizations yeah, yeah, that makes a big difference. I'd really like more people to read it who work in HR departments and, and more employers and more MPs as well. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to let you go. I know you've got jam-packed day, I'm sure, of you know this work. So thank you so much. I really appreciate your time this morning. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.